Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I am. I got to say, I'm a little exhausted after this crazy, crazy week. And of course, of all the big news that came out of this week, I'd say uh, the biggest, no story was at all bigger than Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announcing his retirement. Um, now, President Trump uh, will almost certainly nominate someone to the right of Kennedy as his replacement. I don't think there's really much question about that, which means it'll give the court a much more reliable five to four conservative majority. Now, I think there's no question that sent Democrats are going to wage a, a pretty ferocious battle against, well, really against whomever President Trump nominates, but because they're in the minority and Republicans ended filibusters on Supreme Court nominees in order to get Neil Gorsuch confirmed, uh, the chances of them torpedoing a nomination are, I would say, slim to uh, slim to none. W- would you agree? Um, I wouldn't say, uh, I'd say slim. Okay. Slim. <laughs> I wouldn't go smarter than that. Hedge your bets just a little bit. I also, I also want to, uh, uh, should note, obviously, uh, um, I'm waiting by the phone. Yeah. So, well, you, yeah, you just, know. Just, just in case, uh, you know. You never uh, can tell, right? With, with Donald <laughs> Trump, sure. Um, but uh, I expect the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation will be his kind of go-tos for that. But we will find out because he says he will announce his nominee on July 9th, which is coming very shortly. And of course, once we have that name, we will be talking a lot about that person. One thing we do know, I think, is that it's going to be a major fight. It's also going to be a fight that's going to take place in the uh, immediate run-up to the fall midterm election. So there's going to be a lot going on for sure. Um, you know, and there, there was so much talk about this, and this is such an important story that Jay and I decided that this merited an entire episode of its own. And we're going to be airing this as our regular Wednesday show this week, we'll, where it's not just going to be Jay and me, though. We're going to be joined by uh, Northern Kentucky University law professor Ken Katkin for the episode. And because Ken, obviously, as a law professor, has, I think, a, a unique perspective that I couldn't necessarily provide to this. So uh, Jay, Ken, and I, uh, we're going to be discussing Justice Kennedy's uh, jurisprudence, his legacy, and what might happen on a new court in some very important areas like criminal justice, LGBTQ rights, uh, abortion rights, you know, once a uh, much more reliably conservative justice takes Kennedy's place on the court, which I think is almost certainly uh, going to happen. So before we move on, Jay, any uh, any thoughts on uh, just brief thoughts on Justice Kennedy's retirement before we move on to all those big end of term Supreme Court decisions <laughs> that came down this week? And well, there were not, a lot of them. not really. And again, I don't want to. Uh don't want to, you know, ruin it for uh, the folks who are getting ready to tune in on Wednesday. So um, okay. I think I'll, you know, say my, 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 you know, comments for for that. But uh, other than um, this is going to to change a lot of things. In that, I think you're right. Whoever the new justice is is going to be a more reliable conservative vote. Um, and and hopefully, again, my my criticism with. Uh, with Justice Kennedy in in many cases was that uh, he he was sort of back and forth with it was difficult to discern a a governing principle. Um, there was there was a sense of well this is constitutional because I like it this isn't because I don't 
Um, and that's something that's, that's caused, uh, some grief to, to folks like me. Um, uh, but, uh, I think, I think whoever we get will, will be more in the mold of, uh, a Neil Gorsuch. Um, but, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Sadly, I think you're right. But anyway, let's get to those decisions. Um, so the third time was the charm for president Trump's travel ban. It turns out that in a five to four decision split along ideological lines, the Supreme court this week upheld the ban, which was of course in its third iteration. Now in his majority opinion, chief justice Roberts acknowledged the president's many Muslim ban statements, but argued that those statements had to be balanced against the powers of the president to make national security decisions under the legal authority that's granted to him. Now, along the way, the majority decided to explicitly overrule Korematsu versus the United States, which was the 1944 decision where the court upheld the tension of Japanese Americans during World War II, which certainly was long overdue, I'd say. But in my view, we'll get to this, hardly makes up for this very wrong-headed uh, decision. But anyway, um, I'm sure agreeing with me, writing for the court's four liberals in dissent, Justice Sotomayor criticized what she called the majority's unquestioning acceptance of the president's national security claims. And she argued that the majority was being hypocritical by, by discounting, essentially, the president's many statements of religious bias in this instance, while placing a lot of weight on statements of religious bias by an administrative hearing official in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which they decided just the week before. So, Jay, um, what's your take on this? Do, do you agree with the majority's decision here on the travel ban? I, I, I do, and I, I thought you did, too. Um, didn't you post on Facebook that, that you... You you dislike the you yeah, well, dislike the result, we'll, but, but we'll get to know, that in a minute. Yeah, because oh, I, okay. I I uh, I evolved on that. I'll talk about oh, why in a minute. But that. oh, <laughs> never really retracted. Okay. But we'll get that. But anyway, th- talk about talk about your. No, I, I think that's that's the the correct standard. Look, the court um, grants sufficient uh, significant deference to uh, administrative agencies uh, to begin with. Uh, there's even more deference that's typically granted when we're talking about uh, the president's ability on national security. Uh, in this case, there's a statute that gives the president broad authorization uh, to decide who comes in and who doesn't. Um, so I, I think if if you're looking at the the by the books uh, uh, statutory interpretation, does the president have the power to do this? Yes. Uh, is there um, a rational basis for it? Uh, you can argue whether it's a good idea or bad idea. I mean, I I've personally said I think it's it's uh, unnecessarily uh, unnecessary and dumb. Um, I think you go farther and say it's it's bad and immoral and all that kind of stuff. I but do. Um, regardless, uh, I think the president has the authority to make that that call. And there are some findings um, that were used to support this. Now, again, you can say, well, those findings are are sort of slim pickings. Uh, uh, there should have been more done. Uh, obviously, that wasn't the case in the first couple iterations of this. Um, but I think now they've they've had uh, the you know s- enough uh, uh, findings, enough rationale uh, that this this gets over the bar. Um, I, I think the the majority avoided the troubling uh, precedent if if they had said, well, we can look at uh, a president's uh, campaign speeches um, in evaluating future future actions. Uh, I think that would opened. Uh, a, a Pandora's box that that really would have been been problematic. Uh, so uh, and again, the, the 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 basis of the court, what they look to do is 
we're looking at um, the statute uh, and we're looking at then the the rule uh, that that's being put in place and you look at the text and if the text is facially neutral um, you know you you go with that so yeah and, and you know you pointed out Jay that I, I in fact I did post on Facebook uh, right after the decision came out that I reluctantly supported the majority's decision but for the exact same reasons that you pointed out that there is a certain amount of deference that is due to the uh, the president on these issues by statute. And also, you know, I mean, I am, uh, uh, I believe in judicial restraint, as we talked about a number of times, this is going to come up again when we talk about the, uh, the other cases this week. So based on all that, I thought, well, yeah, this is horrible, immoral, awful policy. But as a matter of interpretation, yeah, I mean, I thought here. Here's what I thought. Well, you know, the first travel ban and the second travel ban. Yeah, those were there was no real even rational basis for. They didn't even bother to come up with some sort of a standard. But right. for the third travel ban, the administration. Uh, this was my understanding. The administration carried out this this study, and basically they said, here are these countries that have not met certain security standards, and yes. It so happens that a lot of them may have majority Muslim populations, but that wasn't the basis for the ban. The basis for the ban is on their security standards. And, and I heard that and I said, well, that seems like a reasonable argument to me. Right. So that's where I mm-hmm. was. And it was on that basis that I posted on Facebook. But then I, I, I dug into what that uh, analysis was. I, I looked at uh, what that entailed, basically. And essentially, what I found, and in large part, this was due to, uh, I found this excellent article about uh, the, uh, the criteria for this ban uh, on uh, the Cato Institute's website, a libertarian group. Mm-hmm. A- and what the Department of Homeland Security did is they did, in fact, create these sort of baseline criteria as to what sort of security standards other countries needed to meet. Okay. But, and, and those criteria were reasonable criteria, I thought certainly, but what then, but what then they did is they didn't apply them equally. They, they, but they use all these mitigating so-called mitigating factors to avoid banning every country that failed in these things. But then they used kind of unmitigating factors for these majority Muslim countries. Like, for instance, one of the big factors that they had is these countries need to have electronic passports. Well, there were something like 86 countries that didn't issue electronic passports in 2017. And there are a bunch of other examples like this. So it seems to me that what they did is they put together this this essentially incredibly flimsy pretext. And yeah, even though I say, well, deference is due, I agree with Justice Sotomayor saying, okay, sure, that's true. But you just don't say, well, you can just give us this piece of paper and say, um, here you go. Because it seemed to me, based on my understanding of what the standard was and how it was applied, that this standard was applied in an, in an unfair uh, and unequal way. And so based on that, I, I uh, changed my opinion on this. And I think that the uh, I think that the dissenters got it right. Well, what about, say, Saudi Arabia? Well, I said, right? that's what I say. What about if they don't if you if you are promulgating these standards? And you say, this is the standard we're going to use to ban people, then I think that you have an obligation to apply that standard neutrally and equally. And if you don't want to do that, then don't have a standard. So, so Saudi Arabia, though, is, is of course, not on the, the travel ban. Right. 
it is a majority Muslim country. Right. Pretty strongly. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so a big sponsor it, of terrorism and that kind it's, of stuff. It's one of these, it's I mean, one of these countries that uh, I, would, I would think, and I haven't looked at the, the report you're talking about, but my sense is would, would may not uh, meet the criteria, security criteria, because uh, there have been so many terrorists from Saudi Arabia. Um, yet they are given a pass. So my 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 point is, if the the, the center is saying, well, this should be invalidated because of it's based on anti-Muslim bias. Sure. What about Saudi Arabia? That, that's a, uh, what I about that's Egypt? A, that, what about those places? That's a fair point, and I think that my, my answer to that point is that there are certain countries, even though the majority Muslim have a, a you could say a, a special relationship with the United States that we kind of treat very differently. And so I think, you know, you're right to bring that up. And it's not that every majority Muslim country was banned, but based on, again, and and this is not, I don't think this is a slam dunk either way. And this is a, a decision that I don't feel super comfortable about either way, because it's it's difficult. There's a lot of gray area here. And I weigh the deference given, I weigh the things like your point about Saudi Arabia and Egypt. But when I weigh all these things, I find myself slightly tilted toward the dissenters in this case. Not like strongly this was an obvious sort of thing, but to me, the weight of the evidence, I would I would go with the dissenters on this. All right. Well, fair enough. Sorry, I, I looked like you were on the right track there for a while. And and uh, it appears appears you, you fell off, but but uh, you know, sorry. At least at least you were there for a while. Well, uh, well, well. Yeah, <laughs> I I was until the evidence pointed me in another direction. But anyway, um, before we get to uh, the other big cases this term, we would like to thank our newest supporters this week. Uh, they are Patrick. Charles, Michael, Christopher, and Nick, all of whom. Whoa. Yeah, I know. That's a lot of supporters. That is. Uh, they all became monthly sustaining supporters of the show through Patreon. Um, Patrick wrote in, checking in from Central Washington State, just pledged on Patreon for you guys. I really appreciate the level-headed discussion in these polarizing times. Keep up the good work. It's always nice to hear, Jay. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Michael wrote in, new to both Patreon and your podcast, but I honestly can't adequately express how refreshing it is to stumble across a respectful and balanced show about American politics post-2016. Here's here's to hoping that more pundits follow this example. As I'm sure you know, we're not going to thrive as a nation if we don't learn how to talk and listen to each other. Keep it up. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, Nick wrote in, Hey, politics guys, despite being a New Zealander and living in Japan, I really dig the U.S. discussions you have, the way you talk your way through a topic rather than sticking to lazy simplifications. Because you hit each other up, I learned a ton in situations where it's sometimes harder, though more practical, to be in the middle space. So that's good to know as well. So, uh, And of course, you know, when you become a supporter of the show, you not only help us sort of keep this ship afloat, but you also get access to our special supporters only after show last week, Jay, uh, you remember we talked about uh, the life and death of conservative columnist, Charles Krauthammer, um, George Will's advice to not vote Republican in 2018, uh, sort of surprising coming from a conservative columnist, uh, whether the U S should follow Canada's lead and legalize marijuana, uh, 
Jay, your up close and personal encounter with Facebook's <laughs> attempts to clean up political advertising. And you also mentioned uh, Chris Pratt's uh, surprising and very interesting MTV Movie Awards acceptance speech. So a lot yeah. of good stuff. And we, again, have some pretty good stuff lined up for you guys this week as well. Uh, and so, uh, again, if you want to support the show, uh, you know how to do it probably at this point, go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link or just politicsguys.com and you can click on support or wander around there and you'll see how to support the show. Thanks very much. Okay. Moving on. Public sector unions, they suffered a major blow this week when the Supreme court in another five to four ideological split ruled that public employee unions could not force non-union workers to pay collective bargaining fees. Writing for the conservative majority, Justice Alito said this procedure violates the First Amendment and cannot continue. Now, this decision reverses a 41-year-old precedent, uh, Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, in which the court ruled that public unions could collect fees from non-members to cover the cost of collective bargaining. Now, writing in dissent, Justice Kagan argued that Abood should not have been overruled and that the majority's decision weaponizes, in her words, the First Amendment and could wreak havoc by, under, by, sorry, by undoing public sector labor agreements across the country. Now, currently, there are 20 states that allow these public sector unions to charge fees to non-members, which they argue, and I think rightly so, are necessary to prevent free riders. The idea being that without these fees, Non-union members can receive the benefits of collective bargaining, which are considerable, without actually paying for them. And so then without those fees, union membership is almost certainly going to decline, which will give unions fewer resources to effectively bargain on behalf of workers. For instance, uh, the largest teacher union in the country, it's the National Education Association, estimates that as a result of this, they could lose up to 200,000 members and they're readying a $28 million budget cut. So, Jay, uh, what do you think? Should Abu have been overruled? Uh, is this, in fact, a, a free speech issue? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is, and, and this is Abu had been uh, called into question for for years, and and the, um, I mean, the sort of the conventional wisdom was that it was going to go. Um, it was on its way out when Justice Scalia died. Uh, there would have been a case uh, back in. Um, uh, 2016 that uh, had Scalia uh, survived, Didn't likely they, would have. Was would've... that one that they split four four on they or split something? Four yeah. four. Okay. So it, it uh, affirmed the lower court ruling. Um, so uh, no, I think it's this isn't this isn't or wasn't uh, shouldn't have been a surprise uh, to anyone. Um, the uh, so I, I, I what what strikes me is is. Again, not all troubling, but yeah, the the dissent again sort of resorts to policy arguments to say that oh, this would this could goof up um, uh, union uh, uh, contracts. This is and it's it's, but if you read the Alito opinion, um, there's also sort of the great line about you know addressing the the free rider situation that uh, the plaintiff in this case uh, is it doesn't, you know, contend to be a, he's not a, a free rider on a, uh, to the extent he's a free rider, he's on a, a bus to a destination, which he wasn't want to go. Uh, he in fact has been Shanghai, uh, to some, someplace he, um, uh, doesn't care to travel. So, um, yeah, let me, well, let me, I, let me explain that to listeners because maybe that's a little unclear. It also gets into why this decision only applies to public sector public unions, unions yeah. right? Because, and here's the logic is uh, essentially in public sector unions, 
unlike in private sector unions, it's impossible, according to the majority here, to separate political and non-political activity. And the reason why, according to this logic, is if you give money to a public sector union, if you're forced to give money to a public sector union for collective bargaining, that can be construed as support for, for instance, tax increases, government spending, that sort of thing. And that's a political position because you're right. being paid by, well, the government, and that's inherently political. That, I mean, is that, is that a fair yeah, statement of the logic? There, there, have been, there have been prior uh, decisions um, that said, listen, a union can't require contributions for its political activities. Right, right. Um, in, in that case, political activities being defined as you know, we're, this is money for the pack that we're going to, to uh, uh, give to candidates or spend on political advertising, that sort of thing. Uh, these other fair share uh, uh, fees, which would go to the other things the union did, which, which still included some uh, lobbying and, and, and so forth. Uh, but the point that, that the Lido makes is when you're dealing with if if the sole issue is how much should government employees be paid, how many government employees should there be, uh, what should be the staffing for these government positions, that's inherently always going to be a political question uh, when you're dealing with a public union. Whereas if that were were you know General Motors or someone like that, it's it's not uh, a a public political question. Yeah. Well, I, I of course, well, I don't know, of course, but political, I, political question in the in the uh, non-judicial political right. question sense. Right. We talked well, about that. A- <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and on, on the Wednesday show, well, it's a political issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. want to. Yeah, confuse the the verbiage there. Sure, but you know, to me, I get the argument, but it seems like uh, kind of a stretch to me. Um, I don't know. I go so far as to say that it weaponizes the First Amendment, but it seems to me kind of a, a shaky argument the majority's making. And so, when when I find myself in that that situation, I feel like, well, okay, my default is going to be to defer to the democratically elected representatives of the people. And so in this case, I say, well, then if states want these laws, I'm okay with that. And I don't want the justices making policy here. And so that's why I'm, you know, that's why I sort of agree. I guess I would have written a concurring opinion or no, I would have written a separate dissent. No, I'm sorry. I I misspoke. (laughs) I would have written a separate dissent. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have joined Kagan's dissent. I would have written a separate dissent. uh, But I I think that she got it right, but I would have stressed some different reasons is all. Well, and here's, here's the, you know, this was something interesting about this decision is, is that, that level of deference that's due. Um, we've talked before, and in fact, I think it may have just on, on one of our last shows uh, about the way constitutional law works is there's these levels of scrutiny uh, that the court applies to legislative enactments, and right. it sort of varies based on the the right that is being infringed uh, or, or, or limited. Um, and the, the uh, dissent would have imposed... Um, sort of a rational basis uh, a test on this, uh, which again is is sort of a, an easy hurdle to get over. That's essentially the test that w- was applied in the uh, travel ban case. Um, uh, the other end of the spectrum is strict scrutiny, which typically applies to things like uh, racial discrimination or a statute that 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 uh, would have have those kind of implications would be subject to strict scrutiny. And here they the the court comes up with uh, what they they fashion as exacting scrutiny, which is somewhere 
in the middle. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's interesting. So I, I don't want to go out and let and say it's an entirely new standard because I think it, there are other cases where, where it's out there. But this seems to be a new pronouncement uh, for the idea that when you're talking about compelled speech, exacting uh, uh, scrutiny may be the maybe yeah. the standard that we're we're looking at going forward um uh but but i think that's that's important because that's that's really so much where the the constitutional the real legal meat of the thing the the split is yeah um yeah. Well, I, I get the argument, but again, I just think it's it's on balance, and, and it's 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 weird for me because so often in the past when we've been talking about big big court, the Supreme Court decisions, I felt fairly strongly and confident. But uh, I've noticed with this this last grouping, I, I, I find myself very very torn. It's it's a it's an odd position for me to be in. But uh, on this case, again. I get your arguments. I get Alito's arguments, but I think they're just not quite as strong as my uh, as my counter arguments. So yes, I am saying I know better than Justice Alito on this. I guess so. Uh, I think just anyway, anyway. Um, so you know, moving on to yet another five to four decision, yet again along ideological lines. The courts, uh, conservatives, and, and yet again uh, involving compelled speech. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, uh, the court's conservatives overturned uh, this California law that required so-called crisis pregnancy centers, that's the term that's usually used, that they inform patients that free or low-cost abortion services are available to them elsewhere, and, and also for centers that don't have a state medical license to disclose the fact that they don't have a state medical license. Now, the Ninth Circuit had upheld the law, which is the, the California FACT Act. They found that it was permissibly regulating commercial speech. Now, Justice Thomas, who wrote the Supreme Court's uh, majority uh, decision, he disagreed, saying that the law required the clinics to advertise for abortion, which he called the very practice that petitioners are devoted to opposing. And as such, the majority found that this violated their First Amendment rights. Now, in his dissent, Justice Breyer wrote, if a state can lawfully require a doctor to tell a woman seeking an abortion about adoption services, why should it not be able, as here, to require a medical counselor to tell a woman seeking prenatal care or other reproductive health care about childbirth and abortion services? Excellent question, Justice Breyer. Now, pro-choice groups have, you know, for years, they've argued that these anti-abortion crisis centers, that they engage in misleading practices, that they give, well, vulnerable women faced with an agonizing decision, this impression that they're medical professionals, as well as providing them with incomplete and incorrect information about the risks associated with abortion. So, I think, again, the dissenters got this right. Now, this this case, I feel not as all uh, on the fence about or anything like this. I think this was a, a reasonable standard. I think this is, I think the Ninth Circuit got it right. This is commercial speech. They're not being asked to endorse abortion. They're just saying, hey, we want to let you know about this option. And that's not an endorsement. And so I think that the dissenters got it right. And this is just the majority trying to push its, uh, its sort of anti-choice philosophy uh, on, on the country. So, Jay, what do you think? Well, I, I disagree. Uh, again, this is um, where you've got a, a organization that is dedicated to opposing abortion. Um, uh, having to having to make a statement about it, whether you're saying endorsing it or not, uh, um, 
I think that's, uh, and again, the, the idea this is somehow commercial speech, um, that, that strikes me as a little, a little troubling. Um, I mean, that, that'd be like, uh, you're going to buy a Coke and they say, well, you could also have Pepsi, uh, and we can require that. Um, uh, this, this to me is, uh, I think it's an appropriate, uh, and in keeping with, this has been the theme of, of this year's Supreme Court, I, I think really is, is compelled speech. Uh, and you have a right not to be compelled by the government to make statements uh, with which you you disagree. That was the case in you know in, in masterpiece uh, cake, uh, the case in the uh, the union case, and and, and uh, here. And there was another one that it's escaping me right now, um, but it was a a similar um, idea that the government yeah. required you to to make some sort of speech. Uh, and so I I think they 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 get this right and. Again, for all, if you want to say crisis pregnancy centers are bad or they're dishonest or they're or something like that, uh, fine. That's a that's a policy point, uh, but it's not a a a legal uh, that that's not the test of whether we think someone's a a bad organization. We can compel them to uh, send a message that that uh, they oppose. Yeah, well, you know, I, one thing, and, and I'll answer I'll answer uh, Justice Breyer's question. Um, about why can't uh, what's the difference between um, requiring a, an anti-abortion organization uh, to make a statement saying regarding abortion services versus uh, a, a pro-abortion uh, agency making statements regarding adoption is that we have a, a public policy in our country that that the idea is that life ought to be be favored. Uh, I think that's a legitimate public policy. Uh, that that's out there, and and that's you know again in, in Bill Clinton's famous iteration, abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare. Um, so it, it's it's the well uh, to me it sounds like a like a double standard, and I think it's going to be interesting if to see if pro-choice groups will use this decision to challenge uh, those state laws that require doctors to, you know, essentially read certain scripts about alternatives to abortion if they feel that they have some sort of, you know, I mean, that's, that certainly sounds to me very much like compelled speech as well. And that's, that's my, that's my problem with this, you know, to me, uh, this seems to be like, uh, you know, a neutral uh, commercial speech. It's not an endorsement or not an encouragement of anything like that. Um, and, and again, to me, this seems like uh, uh, more conservative activism to close out the term. And, and, and again, you know, I've said this time and time again, I, I agree with, well, I agree with Justice Breyer here, but to me, this is another political question that the court has no business deciding. I, I, and I would defer to the states and the democratic process on this, not nine unelected life tenure judge, judges making policy on this. So that's, that's my position on this. And I think I'm, you know, reasonably consistent on it. Oh yeah, you're, you're consistent. Yeah, I'm just consistently wrong. You're saying. Okay. Um, See, I, I think, you know, I, I say, I, I feel like I'm, I'm this sort of rare breed. I am a, I am a liberal, uh, judicial, uh, judicial restraint proponent, which is kind of a weird sounding sort of thing. Cause we don't necessarily associate those two things, but, but certainly there is conservative activism and I am against judicial activism of, of, of all stripes. But, uh, well, now, again, I would say this is something different than, uh, again, to me, judicial activism typically means uh, finding a new right where where one did not exist before, and and we've got sort of a long line. It's it's well established in our jurisprudence sure. that 
people can't be compelled to say, just as you you can't be pre- prevented from saying something the government doesn't like, uh, you can't be compelled to say something that the government does like. Yeah, that, that's fair. And I, I define it a little differently. I, I, I My philosophy of it is, well, in cases where I am uncertain, where I don't think it's sort of a slam dunk, I defer to the democratically elected branches because I don't want my judgment overriding theirs. Now, there are some instances where I think it is pretty clear, in which case that's, that's a different story. But I, I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt, uh, for better or worse, to the democratic process. That's kind of my how I look at it. But anyway. It was, Jay, a week of five to four decisions. We've got one more to discuss. One more. One more. One more. The court's five conservatives, once again, upheld congressional and state legislative maps in Texas, which a lower court said discriminated against black and Hispanic voters. In his majority opinion, Justice Alito wrote, the lower court was wrong in how it considered the challenges and did not credit the Texas legislature with a presumption of good faith. It was the plaintiff's burden to overcome the presumption of legislative good faith, he argued. Now, Texas argued that the district, the districts that they put together couldn't be considered a racial gerrymander because they were based on a map that was initially drawn by federal judges who were following a challenge to the districts Texas, Texas threw after the 2010 census. This has been going on for a while. Right. Though I feel like it's important to note that the basis for this judicially drawn map was the initial map that the legislature drew because in 2012, the Supreme Court threw out the initial lower court created map and specifically instructed the district court to use Texas's map as a template. Um, also, I, I should point out, in, in fairness... You can't win for losing. Well, I should point <laughs> out that the majority did find that there was one state legislative district that was drawn on constitutionally impermissible uh, racial grounds here. Now, Justice Sotomayor really was pretty upset about this decision. Uh, Her dissent, I believe, was actually longer than the majority opinion, I believe in this case. She argued that the opinion does great damage to the right of equal opportunity, not because it denies the existence of that right, but because it refuses its enforcement. Um, She basically argued that the district court did correctly weigh the intent of the Texas legislature and that they came to the right conclusion that it was created with discriminatory intent, essentially uh, that that the majority was was giving, I guess, too much presumption of good faith on on the Texas legislature. So, Jay, or, or if you extra, or if you extrapolate it, that the the uh, map created by the prior court upon which the Texas legislature created its its new map uh, was also uh, racially uh, tainted. But again, as I pointed out, that that the court. The first lower court map was thrown out when the court said, no, 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 you have to use Texas's map as a basis. So I think that's a little weaker of an argument than some on the right are making it out to be. But, uh, you know, for me, this is a tough one. Um, and again, this is going to get back and maybe I sound like a broken record here. I don't care because I feel like I'm, I'm being consistent here. Um, I feel personally pretty certain that Republicans in Texas did intend to racially gerrymander. Not because they're a bunch of racists, though, you know, there are racists everywhere, but they did it for partisan advantage. So, I I mean, in my own thinking, I feel like, well, of course they did that. But I don't know. But partisan advantage, at least at this point, isn't a reason to strike down a map. Well, the two things are, I mean, are, are... very clearly correlated. So I think they, yeah. you know, they sat down and said, well, let's pack all the, the all the blacks and Hispanics uh, into these districts so we can win more. And that's still racial gerrymandering. But 
Here's here's and my also this, but also to some extent required. Well, well, I disagree. By that, but, the but Voting here, Rights Act, right? I, I in some instances, but not here. Now, here's my problem. Um, I don't know that this intent is clear enough for me to overturn their map. You know, so I think Justice Sotomayor and the dissenters are right in thinking that Texas acted in bad faith. But to me, there needs to be a pretty strong case made to show me that this is in fact, and I don't feel comfortable acting on my strong supposition here, you know, and I don't see anything that's kind of smoking gunish enough. And in some instances there are where you see state legislators saying, oh yeah, we put all the black people into this district and in which case it's like, well, okay, but here we don't have that. And so again, my default, I defer to the decisions reached by democratically elected officials through the political process and not letting unelected, unaccountable, life-term judges make these decisions. So applying that principle, I have to say, well, I kind of side, I, I reluctantly sided with the majority here, even though I'm pretty sure there are some there was some bad intent, but I don't want to substitute my not entirely sure judgment for that of the representatives of the people. So uh there you go. Wow. You are you are incredibly consistent. You know, I, um, I like to think I have a strong, strong philosophy, strong belief here. You know, on, on our Wednesday show, uh, Ken uh, especially talks about how the judicial branch is, you know, very political and they're essentially politicians in robes. And, and maybe he's right. And maybe I, I, he's not. I vehemently, uh, vehemently disagree. Uh, perhaps they are, but the, the, they, they ought not to be. Well, and so. that's kind of how <laughs> I, I how I fall on this. And, and I feel like. It's very important to me to have this. And this kind of gets back to sort of my kind of Burkean conservatism in that way. And this belief that I may think I'm the smartest person in the room and occasionally am, but it helps if it's a small room. But having a certain intellectual humility and recognizing that there are a lot of times where I am wrong. And so that's where this comes from for me. And so sometimes this means I have to agree with decisions that I can't really stomach. Uh, So and this is one of these cases. Well, I, I, I'm I'm going to go on just, and this isn't so much the, the legal analysis of it, but just the, the practical analysis of it. Um, there there are requirements to create a certain number of, of minority majority districts, and and the problems that that states run into is it is sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, you're going to get sued either way. <laughs> you'll get sued because you'll say that you know that that you violated the Voting Rights Act by uh, diluting black votes by splitting them up into too many different districts, uh, or you will be get sued because you're saying you're concentrating uh, too many minority votes in one district, uh, thereby allowing um, uh, more non-minorities to to be elected uh, in other districts. Um, so it, it's one of those things that to me is a constant frustration and a reason why I think uh, redistricting ought to remain a, a political process, as you say, and and not have the the, the court get into it because uh, where otherwise we're, we're set to this, this constant revision um, with different courts ordering different maps uh, and and all throughout. Now, lastly, to the, the intent piece, though, I, I think you're kind of right, and I would put a little bit different gloss on it in that if if the bad intent is to uh, discriminate against minorities, uh, then yes, that's that's problematic, uh, and that's something that that is not allowed. If the bad intent is to uh, we're going to do something that is going to benefit uh, one party over another, um, 
at least at this point, that's not a a basis for saying the map uh, ought to be thrown out. Yeah, and he, I, I agree. I agree with you. I don't think this is. I don't think this is a racial intent in terms of uh, we want to uh, somehow dilute the votes of of minorities. Uh, I think it is a a political idea of of a, we want to elect uh, more Republicans. Yeah, I, well, I, I would say, and I largely and some agree people with that. may not see a difference there, but but yeah. there's a difference. But but I would also say that there are. I, I have no problem believing that there are certain people, elected representatives in Texas and other places, who are in fact racist. I mean, I don't know who those people are. Obviously, Could I do not be. have a list, and so I'm like, not saying that list of Texas yeah, exactly. racists. I'm not saying that's not a motive. Facebook next week, but. Yeah, but but I think also if all of a sudden through some magical process that a majority of, of African Americans started voting Republican, you would see a lot of this redistricting change very quickly um, uh, by the Republican so. Party. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so let's let's move on to something that's actually not the Supreme Court. Uh, it happens every once in a while. Of all this week, uh, we do have one big thing. Uh, well. Big, big involved yeah, complex. It's been a crazy week, man. It really, I've been, my God, I spent so much time trying to just get a When get a we started handle. this show, I was, I, I used to think like, man, are we going to have enough stuff to do one show a week? I mean, it's really. Donald Trump has taken care of that for us, uh, for better or worse. But uh, so immigration, uh, you know, uh, here, I'll, I'll try to do my best, Jay, to hit the, the highlights or lowlights, uh, I suppose, in some instances. So let me know if I miss anything and then we can kind of go from there. All right. Okay, here we go. First, President Trump earlier in the week tweeted, we cannot allow all these people, these people, to invade our country. When someone comes in, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy and law and order, which to me is sort of ironic since due process is kind of fundamental to the uh, rule of law. And I think uh, you agree with me on this, right, Jay? I do agree with you on this. Yes. Yeah, and the President Trump calling for, and we actually had a big, there was a big debate on our Facebook group uh, this week on that. I think a lot of people don't really recognize that a due process applies to anyone who's in this country. It doesn't matter where you came from. If you're here, you have the right to due process a law. And so we can't just summarily ship you off to wherever, basically, right? Right, right. And I, th- I think there's, I think there, there's reason for confusion, and apparently this is perhaps Trump's confusion. Um, you know, if you are uh, an immigrant, uh, someone trying to get into the U.S., perhaps uh, seeking asylum, and this kind of comes up with, uh, you know, the, the um, travel ban, you don't have a presumptive right uh, to to come to the U.S. Right. Um, but once you're here. Uh, if you are apprehended and you're going to be charged with some sort of a crime, like entering the country illegally, due process kicks in and you are uh, allotted all the due process rights of, of any other citizen or any uh, person yeah. living here. Um, well, so, you know, and, and what we're talking about here are illegal border crossings where someone is going to be uh, detained or prosecuted uh, for that. So due process kicks in. Yeah. And, you know, and, and some people were were pretty upset about this thing. Well, come on. They crossed the border illegally. They, we saw them. We know it. They're obviously guilty of this crime. And my response to that is, well, think about some of these mass shooting cases where, well, right. you know, those cases where you know who the person is, he's caught on, you know, he's caught and so forth. There's no question, but we still work under that presumption of innocence and allow them to make their case. And that's, 
the fundamental basis of our system. And that's, that's how it is. And if, if, you know, if you don't like that, I suppose you can try to change the constitution, but I think that's a, that's a pretty important protection for well, anyone it's, who's it's in this pretty, country. It's pretty, it's pretty longstanding that, yeah. that uh, uh, non-resident citizens have, have, uh, you know, due process rights. This is not um, the wild west where you say, well, we caught them red handed and string them up. This is right, not how we do right. things. And, and again, the, the idea that, uh, in many of these cases, the evidence is overwhelming. <laughs> you know, here you are. Are you here legally? No. Um, you know that, that it's it's pretty much going to be an open and shut case. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that the burden is still on the state uh, to to prove that uh, you yeah. know you acted illegally. And 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 then immigrants are, are well anybody. I mean, you could have you know again. I'm I was I was thinking this sort of you know bizarre scenario of your. You know, whatever you're traveling in Mexico and and you're you're robbed and mugged and your passport is stolen and uh, you know somehow you just sort of like stumble through the desert and find your way back north uh, to try to get back to America and and you're apprehended and you say wait wait I'm an American citizen and they say yeah well where's your passport yeah. and you know again that would be the type of situation where you would expect hey due process ought to be ought to be applied so yeah. um, absolutely. Well, and of course, it was more than just a tweet. Uh, it's always more than just a tweet. Well, sometimes. But uh, also this week, 17 states and the District of Columbia sued the administration over its family separation policy under the claim that it is an affront to state's sovereign interest in enforcing their laws governing minimum standards of care for children. Now, you might wonder, well, how is this relevant Given you know the president's <laughs> well, well, I would just say it's surprising they have now they have now discovered state sovereignty. These well, uh, I, I don't mean that so much, but, generals, but given the fact that the president gave an order halting the separations, but I would argue that minimum standards of care for children that's still a serious concern to raise, especially as the administration is seems to be actively trying to overturn the Flores settlement, which would allow the government to retain children with their families in these kind of quickly constructed holding facilities. Well, indefinitely, instead of releasing them after 20 days, as the settlement has been interpreted to require. And of course, I should also point out that absent any sort of judicial or legislative action, the president could, if he wanted, always order the separations to resume. And so I think that that's a reasonable ground for this lawsuit going forward. And I think this is, you know, this is a, a serious concern and these states are right to be concerned about that. Um, oh, I, I mean, I look at it as it, I think it's grandstanding by some some Democratic uh, attorney generals. Um, and, and again, I love that the state sovereignty bit is is uh, is a little rich. Um, that said, I mean, we come back to the, the fundamental problem that you and I talked about before and, and what's been you know frustrating i think uh, to me in, in this debate is that um what's what's going to be the policy if, if you're going to say we're not going to have uh um why well, you know I, I know you don't like to say catch and release so app- apprehend and and uh uh i don't know what would, what would be another well, I, I think the problem with release is it suggests that people are just being right. it's it's a, it's a fishing uh, euf- uh metaphor but, but and, i appreciate it... you pointing that out so but yeah i think the problem that i have with it is not only that and it's it's this obviously catchy sort of sort of thing essentially but uh, also it gives people this idea that these uh these folks who are who are in in the country and we haven't determined that their status their legal status yet that they're simply just let go and that's just 
not the case. What happens, and you know, you certainly can do that. But as we well, talked about, that, it's not. Yeah. As we talked about last week, this other alternative is what's called alternatives to detention, and there are a lot of ways to do that. And there are also a lot of studies by you know the data from sure, ICE. They show up when you do the right. Yeah. And, and I think the problem is, is that the Trump administration seems hell bent on not pursuing that, not because it doesn't work. I think because it just does not look good politically. The president doesn't want to say, well, we're letting him go with an ankle bracelet or something like that, even though it's 98 point something percent effective or whatever the number is, because the optics of that don't look good to the president's base. And of course, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that the last survey data I've seen on this says that, yeah, while the country as a majority is against this, among the president's base, this is actually still has, I believe, a major, a slim majority of support. So that kind of that, that kind of fits into the whole Trumpian thing. I think he puts that over what would make sense in terms of policy. And I should also point out this is a lot less expensive, a lot more humane, but it doesn't play as well as tough on immigrants. And so, right. I, and that to me is just a horrible way, and you know, a, a immoral way to make policy. But but as as I said last week, that that misses the point of there's still if you're going to have enforcement, there's got to be some initial apprehension, uh, unless unless you're just going to sure. sort of you know pass pass out the ankle bracelets at the border and say here you go. I mean you you've got to these these are people who are being stopped uh, and brought in. Uh, I think there is a legitimate concern about about trafficking, about unaccompanied minors, about what do you do with those. Uh, folks who, who, who uh, again, oh, yeah. in, in, in some cases, and in, in a lot of cases, the evidence showed of of uh, uh, parents who are having kids smuggled in here by by people who are uh, not not uh, not so good, and sure. might, one might even call them bad hombres. But um, uh, so I, I mean, I think the 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 left has has been this will stop the stop the policy stop, and and I'm not sure what the uh, I mean. There's marches today, uh, and I'm. And I'm not sure again uh, over what. Um, well, I think I think again it's over. Uh, under, understanding. Look, I understand that not all the kids have been reunited yet. Um, well, and I and need, we need to talk that, about that because I think that the, I think that the response would have been a lot different had the Trump administration said, "Well, we are going to have a zero tolerance policy, but we understand that we number one do not have the wherewithal to humanely and legally detain." all of these families. And, and number two, it just would cost too much. And so therefore we are going to really put a lot into these alternatives to detention. I think the response would have been a lot different. Now, maybe you agree. I mean, we can't really, you know, it's a hypothetical, yeah, obviously, but well, I think you're, I think you're entirely wrong. But anyway, my point being is that's not what happened. And one thing we do know is that the administration announced this policy being totally unprepared for this. I mean, this week, for sure, we saw that the lack of communication between Homeland Security, which is, you know, through ICE, is responsible for the adults being prosecuted, and Health and Human Services, which is in charge of the kids that have been separated from their parents, that's become very sadly apparent. There have been officials who said, well, we know where everyone is. Only, I think, at this point, around 500 or so, maybe a little more at this point, of around those 2,300 separated families have been reunited. And, and most of those reunifications are thought to be those families that were most recently separated since they hadn't got as, gotten as entrenched in, you know, in the system right. yet. And so now this is just a big, bloody mess 
basically. And in, in, in response, I should also mention in response to an ACLU, an earlier ACLU lawsuit, a federal judge in California ordered the government to reunify all parents with their minor children who are under five within 14 days and reunify all parents with their minor children who are over five within 30 days, as well as to make sure that parents get phone contact with their kids within 10 days. And this seems like the government is really scrambling to do this. And again, you know, and this to me, regardless of what you think about this policy, I don't see there's any way Republican, Democrat, uh, whether you're an open borders-ish type of person like Trey, or you're just like a build a huge wall person, how you can say that this wasn't just example of incredible administrative incompetence on the part of the Trump administration. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean I'm, I'm not going to argue that, uh, that this wasn't badly handled. Um, yeah. Uh, my, my, my point is uh, so many on the left, I mean, you've now got this call for the abolishment of, of ICE and so forth. Well, there are some people, uh, but what, I think that's I mean, a... so what, I mean, what's it's, it's the, um, what, what result would satisfy uh, folks on the left? Um, well, you know, let, let me let's talk about that for a minute because, and I think you've gotten some pushback on the past from this, and and some of it's pretty uh, vociferous. I think we could say, but I think I object. Well, I not think I object. I know I object to just talking about the left as it's some kind of monolithic thing. You know, you're right in the sense that there are some extremists on the left who say abolish ICE, and there are some people I saw. There was a thing scratched into a wall at an ICE protest somewhere, I think it was in New York, saying that the only good cop is Officer Down or something like that. I mean, that's kind of yeah, just— those are the guys I'm talking about. Right. But my point <laughs> is, is that— Problematic. My point is, is that most people on the left are no more like that than most people on the right are, you know, Aryan Brotherhood, right, white nationalist people. And I think by saying the left and not pointing out that that's not really representative, I think that does a disservice. And I think that's what some people are pushing back against. And I think they're right to do that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, uh, Cynthia Nixon, uh, a famous actress and candidate for governor of New York. Um, uh, Karen Gillibrand uh, is a senator. Uh, those are two that jump to mind right now who've, who've called for the uh, abolishment advice. I think Diane Feinstein also. Um, but to be so clear, that's, they're that's not saying, saying this they're, isn't, they're this, not isn't calling... this isn't the Aryan Brotherhood of a couple crazy guys. Uh, these these are uh, folks who are mainstream Democrat politicians who are saying this. Sure, but but they're not like they're not saying open borders and just have no immigration enforcement. And that's okay. imp- that's an important distinction to make. The and that's, Democrat- the question, that's the question I'm asking is, well, then what is it that, that they want? Well, I think so if we don't want the immigration control and enforcement agency to exist anymore. They, I think I think the argument is that in its current form, it is so incredibly problematic that we need to reinvent it, do something new and different, uh, basically. And, and I, I think there's that's uh, to me that goes a little further than I'm willing to go. But I'm kind of, you know fairly centrist in this, but it's not certainly a call for no enforcement and open borders and letting MS-13 and, and, and traffickers in the country. Uh, and to say I'm- that, but I think, okay, here's, here's to answer your question. I think the basis of a centrist type moderate compromise would be something that would call for, uh, you know, enforcement, maybe even a zero tolerance policy, but without people being forcibly detained in these, I believe, inhumane uh, uh, or, or certainly uh, not good conditions. And so 
Now, certainly there are people on the... I think, I, I think wait, that wait, makes wait. my point. Well, I think there are people to the left of me who would agree that that is simply not okay. Just like there are people to the right of you who would say, no, that's not harsh enough. But I think the problem is, is we're letting the extremes kind of dictate the terms of the debate here. And I wanted to talk about that because I feel like House Republicans have done that too, because this week, again, they failed to move forward legislation to address this at all. And now with the 4th of July extended break coming up, it's not like it's going to happen anytime soon. You know, they made a decision that they were going to work entirely within their own conference, that they weren't going to try to bring aboard any Democrats, even in, you know, slightly to work this out, knowing full well that that means that whatever they came up with would basically be DOA in the Senate because they're going to need Democratic votes. So again, to me, the problem is, is that the people who really could do something to in effect a solution here have decided that they're going to let the hardline voices dictate the terms of the debate. And I think whether those hardline voices are in the far right or the far left, that's almost always a bad idea in terms of policy. Um. Uh, sure. I mean, again, I'm uh, against the, the whole hard line uh, bit of it. Um, but I think if, if you look and we've had this discussion before, um, any any major legislation really has to start with making sure that you've got uh, your own caucus uh, behind you. Um, uh, and and you, you see, I, I, I wouldn't see any Democrat uh, uh, defecting from the Democrat part line to to vote for any Republican bill. Um, this, the, 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 uh, there were two bills floated, one, the conservative version that failed one, the more moderate version that failed also. Um, uh, so, uh, but I think in, in the end, uh, you know, politically, I think all sides probably got what they wanted. Now the, the dreamers didn't get what they wanted. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, both the conservative Republicans, the centrist Republicans and the Democrats, uh, you know, electorally from, from that whole exercise all come out uh, where they wanted to be. Sure. I, I, I agree and I disagree. I agree in the sense that there definitely are some people who are just using this as, as an issue, as a way to get more power, as that kind of cynical sort of way, basically. And, you know, regrettably, there are a certain number of these people. But of course, at some point, you have to say, well, what's the point of this power if we do not use it to help people out? basically, to do right. good for the country. And there are these, these cynical folks on well, both that's... sides who do that. But, but I think that there really is by the, uh, a sort of a, a moderate coalition that could be put together, but no one's trying. There was sort of an abortive attempt with the, the discharge petition attempt, and that did have bipartisan support. There were a number of Republicans who signed on. There were, you know, almost all the Democrats. So the idea that there isn't a majority. Well, I, I would say here's, 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 there's a difference. Uh, there's between a discharge petition and actually voting on the bill. Yeah, there certainly is. But I, at least it would I get could, to If that I'm a Democrat, point. I vote for the discharge petition. Uh, and I say, listen, the Republicans have no control over, over their own caucus. Then when the bill comes to the floor, I vote against it. See, and I guess, that's my problem is if, if we're going to look at all of this, every single thing in terms of political positioning and posturing, uh, that to me is is a failure of, of our representatives and a failure of democracy. Yeah, it may be. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, that's uh, I think. Well, I think that's the leadership. Happening. 
I think yeah. that's how the leadership's doing. I mean, I think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's the decision that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have made. And, and I say shame on them for making it. I think the essence of leadership is when there is a real crisis, a humanitarian crisis like there is now, is you, to a certain extent, put that aside and get something done. And they're not doing that. And I blame the Republican leadership for that because they're the ones in the position to do something. All right. Well, keep, keep in mind, though, that the the more moderate bill would have essentially had, you know, the two major components would have been legalization of the Dreamers uh, and funding for more border security. But just to be clear, when you talk about more moderate bill, this is the more moderate Republican bill that Correct. was designed with no input from Democrats. Correct. So it's but, the but again, Republican I guess, bill I guess and what, the more Republican bill, basically. What, what uh, again, I guess, what input from Democrats would there be other than we don't want to fund the border security? Well, we That's don't what know. the objection well, was. We don't we want don't, the We wall. don't know because there was not even an attempt made, is, is well, my point. Can, and they, when you they, get to the point where you're not even- they, they can talk. Well, when you're, when you're at the point where you're not even making an attempt initially, then I think you failed as a leader. And I would say the same thing if the Democrats take control in 2018. Uh, you can hold me to this. I will say the same All thing. Right. If they completely disregard the Republicans, that's no way to govern a country. Yeah, they well, again, there's there's a whole a whole, you know, it, you can watch it on TV. It's a whole process. People get up and talk and you can that's, say things like if this bill had X, Y and Z, I'd yeah. support it. But that that's different. Here's my it, amendment. I'll, but that, you know, but as you know, that's different. That's different. What happens on on, on C-SPAN and C-SPAN, too, that's very different than what happens behind closed doors. And so you forth. say it to them in the hall outside a committee. Yeah. And that's that's a very different thing. And that's not happening. So. All right. Well, that does it for. uh this week's episode, a little, a little longer than maybe normal, but we had so much to talk about, Jay, you know? We um, did. So before we go, though, I want to thank everyone who's been subscribing to my new interview podcast, Politics Plus. Um, this week, I talked to neuroscientist Tally Sherritt about uh, her work on influence. We talk about uh, why Donald Trump's style was so much more effective than his Republican presidential rivals. Um, we talk about if crowds really are wise. Uh, the answer is kind of sometimes uh, things we can all do to help make our political messages more persuasive. That was very interesting to me. And also what Dr. Sherrod thinks about the campaign strategy I've dreamed up if I ever decide to run for Congress. So that was, uh, uh, well, anyway, you'll, you'll hear about that. So that'll come out on Monday, which is the day I'll be releasing new episodes every week. You can find Politics Plus pretty much wherever you find the Politics Guys, as well as on the Politics Plus website, politicsplus.us. So in a few minutes, uh, Jay and I will be recording our supporters exclusive after show. Today, Jay, I was thinking, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about uh, my thoughts on refusing White House employee service, that whole Mm -hmm. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, red hen, whatever thing. Um, Harley Davidson moving some jobs overseas. Of course, Donald Trump's not happy about that um, with the tariffs and so forth. And Jay, I don't know, what what were you thinking about maybe bringing up? Oh, I was going to talk about the same stuff that you're going to talk about. Anything else that might happen to pop up. So uh, if you are a supporter... All that should be waiting for you probably by the time you hear this. And if you're not a supporter and you'd like to check it out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links or on support the show on the main menu. You'll see there. So that's it. Uh, again, if you want to get in touch with us, oh, before I forget to mention, if you would subscribe to the show, you probably are. But if you haven't, that would be great. It's really easy and simple to do and write reviews on iTunes. That also helps. So if you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. Mail at politicsguys.com. And we've been having some, I would say, Jay, some really interesting Facebook debates 
over everything that's been going on. And if you want to join in on that, it's facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we're also at, on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.